Hey everyone, you're listening to episode number 37 of the Elysium Project podcast, Indigenous Reconciliation with Elaine Alec. I'm your host, Brian Johnson. Established in 2018, our mission at Elysium Project is to leave the planet and its society in better condition than we found it. Please be sure to follow us online at www.elysiumproject.tv where you can find links to all our social media as well as our upcoming online marketplace, blog, and more. Today, I'm speaking with Elaine Alec. Elaine Alec is an author, political advisor, women's advocate, and spiritual thought leader. She previously spoke on the Elysium Project podcast episode number 25 to discuss her book titled Calling My Spirit Back. Given the events in Canada regarding the residential school system, we wanted to have Elaine on the show again to speak on this from an Indigenous person's perspective and share her thoughts on how we can move forward and beyond colonialism as a society. Elaine, thank you so much for coming back to the show. So good to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate it. I really enjoyed our discussion last time. And um, today we wanted to focus on Indigenous affairs in specifically in Canada, where we are from. Um, a lot has come to light over the past couple of years, of course, with the unfortunate events surrounding the residential schools. And I feel that we as a nation are still have so much to learn about all of these these issues in terms of our history and the colonization from the Europeans of Canada. So that's why you're here today to help uh, share some of your insights as an Indigenous person and uh, to really educate us on what's happened from that perspective and not of the perspective of what has been written in our history books by the colonizers. Thank you. That was, um, it's always such a big uh, conversation to have. And I think one of the things I always like to start off with is just kind of talking a little bit about my experience and how and why I'm able to show up in the way that I do today. Um, I, on our last call, I know I, I talked a lot about, you know, my experience growing up on the reserve and, and how that impacted me and my healing journey. Um, <clears throat> but I've struggled, you know, with, with anxiety and trauma and alcoholism um, for a majority of my life and have done a lot of work uh, to heal and move past that multi-generational trauma mm-hmm. um, and that alcoholism, you know, that was a cycle within my family. And so that took a lot of work, but I also had a really strong upbringing from my grandmother, who was a language speaker and a knowledge keeper, and she shared a lot of things with me to root me in my identity and my sense of belonging. And I think, you know, a lot of times people feel very burdened, you know, to have to share and educate uh, all the time, um, and it can be emotionally and mentally draining. But I think that you know, I was really, really blessed and really privileged to be able to grow up with my grandmother who taught me those things to have that strong sense of identity and belonging to know that I came from a family and a people and a land 
Um, and so many of that was stripped from people because of the residential schools. And so because I have that strong grounding, I am able to share a little bit more than somebody might, somebody else might not be able to share as much. And so just to be, um, you know, I always acknowledge that because, you know, there are some people who feel a sense of responsibility to teach and who work from that perspective to teach. Um, but not everybody um, works from that space as well. And so, you know, I'm one of those people who has a relationship perspective and believe in teaching and sharing knowledge. And so uh, I just, I guess that's kind of a disclaimer in the beginning of, of how I'm able to show up in a space like this. Of course. And obviously just share what you feel comfortable sharing. I know it's a, a very um, intense issue. So yeah, of course, just feel, share what you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And we're just here to, to listen and learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So for people, as this is a, a global podcast, we have listeners all around the world. Can we share a little bit about um, what exactly were the residential schools? What does that mean? I know in our school system in the 90s, I think I kind of went to elementary school, we really didn't learn a lot about it or if we did it was kind of a footnote on a page of um, history about the indigenous peoples and so much like I say over the past few years has come to light about the tragedy tragedies in this school system so again as much as you're comfortable with sharing if we can kind of go into what that system was yeah I think even for me, I'm 44 years old. I was born and raised on the reserve. My mom and my dad and my grandma and my grandpa all went to residential school, but I didn't learn about residential school until I was 29. And so I've been to reserves and I've been in a residential school and I had gone to powwows where they held residential schools in the same area and people talked about it, but nobody really knew the history of it. Nobody really knew exactly what they were. And it wasn't until I was 29, working as an intern for the Indigenous Youth Internship Program, where we had an elder who was a residential school survivor come in and share their story with us. And I remember um, really me also being really shocked hearing what he was sharing with us because it was so extreme. And I didn't believe that, I couldn't believe that people could be so evil or that people were able to get away with that. And I started to hear more and more stories as um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission started to form and people started talking about it. Um, and it started being announced by the Assembly of First Nations uh, National Chief at the time. Uh, some of the stories of residential school survivors. And, and that was when more and more survivors and elders started telling their stories. And I've traveled across Canada and have heard stories from so many elders and so many of their experiences were the same. And so it became really, really hard for me to, dis to, to believe it was just a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. And so as I got older, I learned that um, residential schools were put in place to assimilate Indigenous peoples, Indigenous peoples into a colonized system and way of doing things to kind of 
get rid of the the devil worshiping savage and to and to get us to be good Indians. And as somebody mentioned in one of the documents that was shared from a long time ago, it was to kill the Indian and the child. Mm. And so the whole process was to, you know, teach us how to speak English and to get us to do things and to conform to a colonized way of being and thinking. And a lot of violence was utilized on, on children. Um, children as young as three were taken from their homes. Some of them never went back home. Um, there were a lot of kids who were able to go home for holidays if their parents could afford it. And some never saw their families for years. And when I listened to the elders talk about it, some of them didn't even know what had happened. They just thought their parents gave them away or they didn't know why their parents loved them anymore. They had no clue why they were sent to those places. And so um, you know, a lot of that was the purpose was really to the whole issue is around land. And so to remove, you know, one of the things that was done first was to remove us from the most prosperous and, and mineral rich pieces of land and put us onto reserves. And so many of our reserves are put in spaces where nothing grows. Water was diverted from our land to service settler colonies um, and to dry up our reserves. And so really to starve and kill us. And, and so that was a big piece in the beginning was to take children away from communities and, and tear communities apart mm. um, in hopes to take everything. And so a lot of that, you know, was all of it was very intentional. I've heard people say, oh, it was maybe it was a pandemic, you know, maybe their mass graves that, mm. you know, I, there's no way this could have happened. Um, and I don't share in detail a lot of the stories that I've heard um, because they are so traumatic. Um, and uh, I have tears, yeah. even I, you can't see mm -hmm. it, but I have tears welling up in my eyes. It's a hard thing to listen to. Um, I was in on Vancouver Island this summer and on the drive from Nanaimo to Tofino on that stretch of highway, there was little orange shirts tied to the trees every few kilometers as a reminder of the the children that were lost and it was just heartbreaking to see and to to listen to every time we think we think of oh Canada is such a wonderful peaceful beautiful place and to know that this is part of our history is a really really difficult thing to acknowledge and and listen to mm -hmm. yeah and I think one of the things like that I've had conversations with people about this is that it's the reality of, of our people today, even, you know, the things that are actively happening to our communities um, to remove us from territories that are rich in resources. And so if you look at the issues in our communities uh, in the North, where it's really rich in oil and um, diamonds and you look at a lot of the areas where we have a lot of um, a high suicide rate in our youth and a high uh, alcohol and drug rates in our northern communities. If you look at the maps to see where resources are extracted, um, they're targeted communities. Wow. And so it's not by accident. It's not a tragedy that this is happening, you know, you know, something that's just happened 
because of what it's the communities and nations are targeted specifically for resources. And I mean, you see movies about it from other countries, you know, right. the, yeah. the tactics that government uses to remove people to get to diamonds and exactly. what is done to people and to believe that's not happening here today in mm. 2021 um, is exactly what's happening to our people here that now that people know what happened to us then they're more open and receptive to seeing the reality of what happens to indigenous peoples in canada today we're still living in third world conditions we're still actively targeted um, there's a reason why there's so many missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirited folks across this country um, you know there's there's a reason why the, those things are are happening to us and it's not by accident and it's not you know, just something that we've done to ourselves, but something that we've been victim to by very intentional governments and organizations. Wow. I did not realize that they were targeted in that way. And it's so true. It's still happening to this day all around the world. Uh, I think that's a, a big challenge with this capitalist system that we have. We, in the West, go to these other countries and sort of take them over in a sense for their, their resources and it's a really it's a really sad way that that's this our system is set up in that way yeah in terms of indigenous reconciliation what do you think is the best approach for those of those of us to take who are of european immigrant descent Obviously, we've only been here on this land for a few hundred years, whereas your people have been here for many thousands of years. I think, you know, people ask me this question all the time, and I always quote my husband. He did a talk on truth and reconciliation at a university a few years ago, and he said, the biggest mistake Canadians can make is focus on the healing of Indigenous people. Hmm. And... It takes a, you know, it takes a few moments for people to start thinking about that. But I always expand on that by sharing that Indigenous peoples have all the tools that we need to heal and to move forward and to do what needs to be done to not just assert, but to practice our self-determination. We, we, we're actively doing those things in our communities right now. And so I think one of the first things Canadians can do is to stop looking at Indigenous peoples as a group of people that need to be fixed or healed or, or, or helped in, in a certain way. We're always seen as a problem, um, especially to governments, right? Like the, the problem, the, the, the Indian problem is how we've always been referred to. Um, my dad was a, was a militant, labeled a militant and a radical because he was part of the American Indian movement because he shut down roads and carried guns and shut down the Department of Indian Affairs offices in 1974. But wow. they don't talk about why he did those things. He was doing that to get access to water and housing for the elders in his community. But yet he was labeled as a militant and a radical. And so... Um, we are doing everything that we need to do, but the reality is, is that I can do everything in my power. My husband can do everything in his power to ensure that our children are healing and healthy and, and are able to function in today's world. But the reality is they still have to go to school with the general population of Canadians. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think the mistake that uh, that we make is that we always focus reconciliation on the other side of the table. And when when we look at in individual relationships and when we look at like our own relationships with people, personal relationships, we know it's never about the other person. We know it's about being accountable and to acknowledge the things that we've done wrong and to make amends and recommit to not making those same mistakes again. And that's exactly what we need to do. What, what we need to start doing as a country is to focus on our side of the table, to focus on what we need to do to heal ourselves, to participate in a good way. Um, you know, I, I, I do a lot of work with people all across the world, and I feel like Canadian allies, Canadian settlers carry the biggest amount of shame when it comes to identifying as a settler in Canada, um, you know, because of the realities of what has happened and what has come up with Indigenous peoples and like how do, you know, that guilt that comes from that, from, from ancestors. Right. And one of the things like if we're carrying these things in the work that we do, if we're carrying things like unresolved trauma and disconnect and if we don't have a strong sense of identity, if we don't have a strong sense of belonging, then we can't be confident in how we contribute to our family, to our community, to the world. And so many people in Canada have been disconnected from their homelands, their people, their ways of knowing and being. And there's trauma with that. There's trauma attached to that that people don't realize. Like not everybody, not every settler came to Canada willingly. Um, you know, there's, we have, you know, stories of uh, people coming from Ireland as slaves. And so they were brought to Canada to, as slaves to work off their debt. And then they would work off even more debt to bring their families to Canada to join them. And in that time, those people were, were actually uh, finding partners in Indigenous communities. And so would have babies with them but then their wives would be brought over and then they'd go to their family and then they'd leave their children, you know, in communities. And so a lot of, um, there's a lot of communities where you'll see Irish blood in our, in our because of that, that history. Right. And so there's like untold histories of the people who were brought to Canada. Um, and that is trauma. You know, there's like, there's, some people don't even know why they were brought here. Some people were fleeing war. Some people were fleeing, you know, other circumstances and didn't always willingly come to Canada. And that creates a multi-generational trauma as well. And that is not just to belong to Indigenous peoples, but um, people being disconnected from their lands, people being disconnected from their families. So many Canadians don't know their own ancestry or where they come from because they identify as Canadian, as their identity. And when I say Canadian is not an identity, it really causes pain for people because that's their identity. That's what they've, that's what they've believed they are and they've left pieces of themselves behind that's in their blood. And so I think for people to, one, to start looking back into their own histories, their own families, their own traumas, you know, their own belonging to to people and and where they're from so that they can feel confident in who they are and how they're going to participate moving forward 
because when people don't have that sense of identity and belonging, they try to find it or take it from other things and other places. And it becomes a power dynamic, which upholds colonialism, which happened to everybody, not just indigenous peoples. Everybody was colonized by a system that harms. And so yeah. it's not just indigenous peoples that need to do the work to decolonize our way of thinking and the way of doing but it's up to everybody to look at the systems that oppress all of us and not just Indigenous peoples, because once we address that, then, then things will start to change. But as long as Canadians think, oh, it's just Indigenous peoples that are being oppressed, it's just Indigenous peoples that are being harmed by these systems, um, where people aren't going to get on board, right? If it's not directly happening to me, why should I participate? I'm okay because I benefit from this system. Um, but really, does it really benefit people? Because the moment we go to school, we're being colonized. The moment we get into systems where we're being graded against each other and being taught to ask ourselves, are we worthy? Are we good enough? Are we smart enough? Those are colonial systems meant to make us conform into something so that we stay quiet, so that we question and we don't question the systems we're a part of. And so, you know, when... Indigenous peoples talk about, you know, that process and what's been happening. Um, it's not just to save and help Indigenous peoples, but all peoples that reside within our traditional territories. Mm -hmm. How do we question the systems that we're a part of? What are some of the approaches to facing colonialism and moving hopefully beyond that way of, of living? I have a really simple question that I ask people when they ask me, how do we start to decolonize? I, I ask, am I doing this from a place of love or a place of fear? Because colonialism and systems are based on fear and control. And so policies, laws, um, they're all put in place to control people. They're all based on fear to control a process people, a company, a government, they're, they're put in place to control things and they're all fear-based. And when we look at decolonizing, we have to start looking at, looking at things from that place of love and trust and faith. And so am I making decisions? Am I asking these questions? Am I participating from a place of love or a place of fear? because we know that policies and process don't work for everybody. And sometimes we know that they may harm people or we might not be able to support people because of a policy that's in place or a rule that's in place. We feel bad upholding these rules and policies, but we do it because we have to. We're, we're, we're governed by these rules and policies. So even though in our gut, it doesn't feel good to uphold them, we do them because we're taught to uphold them. And so I'm always challenging people in the work that I do to question that. Like, even as, like, as I'm doing this, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. I know what's good. I know what's bad. I know what feels right and wrong. And so when I'm doing this work, this, does this feel good to me? Do, am I working from a place of love as I'm doing this? Or am I upholding a system that's harming and if I know that I don't feel good, then I have to question myself and say, why don't I feel good? Where is this coming from? Why am I doing this when I know it doesn't feel good? What policy is that coming from? What rule does that come from? 
who creates that policy, who creates that rule, and how can we change them? Because rules and policies and law are all man-made. Mm-hmm. And they can be changed. And it just requires enough people beginning to question that and find out, finding out how the systems work that they work within and contributing to change in that way. And so everybody can do something actively wherever you're at, whatever company you're working in, whatever school you're going to, um, whatever, you know, whatever you're participating in right now is built on a system. And we can question everything about what we're doing, uh, you know, by, and when we contribute in that way, like we're contributing from our strength. And so I tell people, and, and I know I'm one perspective among Indigenous peoples, you know, everybody does things in different ways. But for me, what's important to me, I don't need people to know my language. Like, uh, like settler allies don't need to know my language. You don't even need to know how to pronounce my name or the territory that you're in right now. You know, those are good things to know, but I'm not going to hold that against you if you don't. What is important to me is that everybody is showing up in the space as who they are with their gifts to contribute to the well-being of all people. And so are you using your gifts and your knowledge and your strengths to contribute to your family, community, and the land? And are you making good decisions based on that, from that place of love? And when you focus on that on that piece of how you can actively contribute in your way um, and put your attention there, it, it lessens the burden of having to make great social change, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like this, like, what can we even do with this? And then we get overwhelmed. And so many advocates get overwhelmed from all mm-hmm. of the work that needs to be done. And when you look at Indigenous systems and stories, they're all about upholding people who were born to have purpose and gifts and strengths. And that is what you contribute from that. You contribute from that place of confidence because you know who you are, you know what you're good at, you know what your strengths are. That's why identity and belonging is so important, right? Like, and even if you can't trace that because you were adopted or you were displaced, your blood remembers. You have blood memory and ancestors that stand with you, that guide you, that, that in our people's belief that's your spirit and your ancestors are connected to your belly button which Mm -hmm. is like that gut feeling right Right. that Mm -hmm. that is your spirit that is your ancestors that is your blood memory guiding you to make good decisions Mm -hmm. when you're saying some of that there reminds me always of one of my favorite quotes by mother Teresa, and it's something like we cannot make great changes in this world. We can only make small changes with great love. And I think, especially for approaching these systems of colonialism, like we've talked about, and uh, for a lot of us, it can seem so daunting in terms of what changes we can tangibly make as individuals. I know um, when I was in high school was when, um george w bush was president of the united states and at that time of course they were claiming that iraq had weapons of mass destruction and giving that as the reason to invade that country they later of course as we all know did not find those weapons of mass destruction so very probably did it for reasons of resources oil and so forth but 
beyond, you know, going on the street and holding up a placard and protesting, I think for a lot of us, it seems impossible. How do we as an individual stand up to these big governments and systems that have been put in place? And I'm just curious what, I know you already kind of touched on it, but what ideas you have for, you know, what we can do as individuals to stand up to these huge behemoth systems that are causing these these ways of oppression yeah i think of i think of our seventh generation teachings when i think about systems change there's like a western approach to systems change and then there's like an indigenous knowledge-based approach to systems change and so when when i think about our ways of doing things we were always taught about seven generations and people have talked about seven generations in a few different ways. Some people say we think about the seven generations to come. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we say we think about the three generations behind us, our generation and the three generations to come. But ultimately what it comes down to is the decisions that we make are based on on the people that were here and the people who are about to come. And it's never just about me. And so I, I always say like, I don't, I was never raised with to, to think that I have individual rights. I was never taught that I have individual rights. I was taught that I have communal rights. I have a responsibility before I have to practice my responsibility before I'm even able to claim a right to anything. Like I am responsible to myself. I'm responsible to my family. I'm responsible to my community and I'm responsible to my land and the land. And that I know that whenever I make a decision for any one of those things, it's going to impact all things around it, that approach to that, that Mm. it will be very, you know, ego driven of me to believe that I have individual rights and that what I decide for myself doesn't have impact on anybody else, you know, that that the decisions I make will make an impact on my family community and the land, whether I like it or not. And so I think about, you know, those things about we're we're always feeling like we we have this great burden of making this great change within our lifetime or we, we only do things that are going to result in instant gratification. So I'm not going to participate in that unless I'm going to feel the results from the work that's being done. If I'm not directly benefiting from it, why should I even bother? And so that's that really, you know, colonial type of, of thinking of I'm only going to do it if. And so when you think about Indigenous teachings around that seven generations, like, I need to live my life based on my purpose, my strength, my gifts. And in doing that, I hope to make at least 1% change. And that the things that I do today is going to make things better for my children and my grandchildren and my great grandchildren, that they won't have to suffer as I've suffered, that maybe they won't experience anxiety because of racism on a day-to-day basis because the things that I'm doing are meant to shift for the next generations that it's taken generations for this to happen to us and to expect it to change within my lifetime would be ego-driven like there's no way that's going to happen and there's an acceptance that I have that I'm not doing this to make my life better in the long run that I can reap 
the benefits and rewards of all of the hard work that I do as an advocate, as, as a storyteller, and, you know, as somebody doing this work, that's really hard, you know, that takes me away from my family, that takes me away from some of the things that are really important to me sometimes, because I'm passionate about making change for my children and my grandchildren. Um, and when, when I accept that, that that's why I'm doing this is for the seven generations and not just me, it lessens that burden, it lessens that great, you know, despair and depression that we feel about, it doesn't matter what we do, we're never going to change it. And it takes, it just takes that 1% shift. And if everybody did their 1%, what that could what could happen if we worked from our strength and did work in that way knowing that that'll make things better for for my children like the way you raise your children will be direct will directly impact the experience my children have mm -hmm. i really love that seven generations philosophy that's very much we we based our our philosophy our mission statement at elysium project is to leave the planet and its society in better condition than we found it, which is very much based on, on that seven generations approach. Is that kind of a unifying philosophy amongst many different First Nations communities? I think so. I've heard it explained in so many different ways. Like my family, my dad's side of the family is Sihuatan, and my mom's side is Silk. And so in English, that's translated into Okanagan people and Shushuk okay. people. Oh, okay. And so those are my nations that I come from. And then my great grandparents came from the Colville nations in Washington and the Nez Perce nations from Idaho and Washington. And so, you know, my daughter's dad, um, he's Cree, so he comes from Alberta. And, you know, then there's different nations all across North America. And all of us have different creation stories and languages and different like ways that we came here. Like our people in the interior of British Columbia, we have coyote stories. Like coyote was the messenger. Coyote was the trickster. Coyote was kind mm. of like the, the Jesus uh, mm. character in our stories. Um, and then if you go to the coast or some parts of um, Alberta, they have the Raven. Raven was the main character or trickster in the book, but they uh, in their stories but all, all of these stories like have teachings in them they have laws in them and some you know some of our ceremonies have kind of crossed over into other nations some have adopted ceremonies that didn't originally belong to them um, and remembered as they've practiced have remembered how to do their own um, but it's like a reclamation of the way we do things and the way we practice our, our ceremonies and and songs and so some of them are borrowed from each other. Uh, some of them are kind of like a universal thing you hear just in different ways. But I think from all of uh, so many indigenous communities, not just in North America, but indigenous communities throughout the world, I believe, um, you know, from the ones I've heard that that seven generations teaching is like something that is like something that all of our, you know, different relatives from across the world to share that same way of thinking yeah that's really cool i'd love to learn more about many of these stories and philosophies that are the bedrock of a lot of these indigenous and first nations communities 
do you have any recommendations? Obviously, you have your own book, Calling My Spirit Back. Um, I'm just curious, any sort of books or movies that, that shed light on a lot of these stories for those of us who are interested in kind of di- dipping our toes in this culture? I know one of the um, one of the movies that I heard was really uh, such a strong representation of the experience of the residential school was Indian Horse. Okay. Um, and that one I haven't been able to watch yet. I've I need to be in a, a I, right. I haven't been able to watch it yet. But I've heard that it's such a good representation of the realities. Um, and it was actually uh, a film that was supported by Clint Eastwood, who okay. who who helped in the production or the 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 reality of this book becoming a movie. The book was written by Richard Wagamis, who is um, who is also a brilliant author um, who passed away a few years ago, but he lived in Kamloops, BC, where I live right now. Um, Helen Knott is another amazing writer. She's writing her second book right now, but her first book is called um, In My Own Moccasins. And that is a really emotional and uh, beautiful, but sad book about the realities of Indigenous women uh, in Canada. Um, Her book is amazing. There's so many authors. There's just so many out there. Uh, If you look, um, you just need to search it now. Instagram has been really great for for that connection for me to other writers and other stories because I can start listing, I can list my top 50 books and I'll have another 50 recommendations by people of people I didn't even know who are out there doing this work. And so, I mean, it's really not hard for people to find that information now, um, you know, there's such a strong circle of people on Instagram who are doing a lot of educating in different pieces. And, and I always share that if you're, if you're comfortable in the way that you're learning um, to try to find something that's a little uncomfortable too, because it's in discomfort where we grow and where we really begin to learn. And so always stretch a little bit out of your comfort zone to learn from people that might be shocking to your system, right? Like I'm a relationship person. A lot of people like listening to me because I'm a relationship person. I cultivating well-being and safe spaces is like what I what I'm really passionate about. And so relationship people are drawn to me. Um, but sometimes you really also need to hear the action perspective of the people who are like directly on the front lines, the frontline workers doing this work who, who want to see action taken right away and are just tired of talking about it. And so sometimes the messaging can be really jarring and really blunt and sometimes uncomfortable and might feel like, and it might feel like a personal attack. Um, but it's also really good, a really good perspective to listen to and be open to as well. But um, yeah. yeah, there's there's just so many resources out there now and so many people that are willing to share. Uh, I, I wouldn't even be able to, <laughs> to yeah. even touch on it. Yeah, I'd love to do a podcast at some time, perhaps in the future about talking, you know, more of these stories. We don't quite have time for that, obviously, today. But it's fascinating and uh, it, is, it is very interesting 
the the design i would say probably of our education system because like i say i was born and raised in canada i went through the the government education system here didn't learn a lot about the very country that that i am from and its history i know more about you know mexican or egypt or far off countries like this than i do about canadian indigenous history um but before we go here, maybe you, if you can share a story, a, a short story or a piece of wisdom from your community that you would like to end this podcast off, something similar to the center, seven generations. Uh, I always think there's great wisdom in your people's culture. So, yeah, there's, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the resources, I think, for my people, so I encourage people to look to where they're living, and the people um, uh, whose land that they're occupying now to ask about their creation stories. Mm-hmm. And so in the Okanagan and Shushwap area, which is the southern interior of British Columbia, we have coyote stories. And in Penticton, British Columbia, the Okanagan people, they have a uh, center called the Anaukin Center, E-N-O-W-K-I-N, the Anaukin Center. You can look them up. They have a lot of uh, opportunities for people to learn through their programming. They also house a publishing company called Thetis Books, um, T-H-E-Y-T-U-S, Thetis Books, and they publish a lot of our stories. And so a lot of Okanagan stories are published and you can actually find them directly through Thetis or on uh, Amazon. So, uh, but I'll share with you a story I shared in my book. Um, It's called the How Food Was Given or the Four Food Sheep Story. And it goes like this, before there were humans, there were animal people. And among those animal people, there were four chiefs. There was Chief Black Bear, who was chief of all things that walked on the land and flew in the air. There was Chief Spring Salmon, who was chief of all things that lived in the water. There was Chief Bitterroot, who was chief of all things that grew below ground. And there was Chief Saskatoon Berry, who was chief of all things that grew above ground. One day the creator came to the chiefs and said, there's going to be a being that comes and you have to figure out how to keep this being alive. And so the creator left the being between the chiefs and left and the chiefs looked at the being and they said, this is the most pitiful excuse for a being we've ever seen. It's born with no fur to keep it warm. It's born with nothing in its head, no teeth to eat. How are we supposed to keep this being alive? And it was a baby. And so they sat there and thought about it for a really long time before they looked at Chief Black Bear and said, well, you're the oldest, you tell us what to do. So Chief Black Bear said, I will lay my life down for this being. Everything I am, it can have. It can have my meat, it can have my fur, it can have whatever it needs to keep itself alive. So the other chiefs agreed that they would do the same thing. So Chief Black Bear said, I'm going to lay my life down now and you have to bring me back to life. So Chief Black Bear laid their life down and the chief sang their song and Chief Black Bear didn't come back to life. So all of the other animal people came to sing their song, deer, muskrat, squirrel, all of the animal people came. Still Chief Black Bear didn't come back to life. Finally, the last being came, let me sing my song, I wanna sing my song. Everybody shooed them away, go on, get out of here. Nobody wants to hear your song. All you do is eat crap and bug people. Nobody wants to hear your song. And it was Fly. And Fly managed to come in and sat on Chief Black Bear's ear and sang their song. And Chief Black Bear came back to life. 
And what that story tells us is that even the most small and seemingly insignificant being the fly, their voice and song was just as powerful as the chief's voice and song. And that when we have the patience and take the time to listen to all of the voices and all of the songs, that we are so powerful that we can bring back life. Each of those chiefs represents a perspective type in the way that we think and do things. Sometimes they're, they're not the same. Sometimes they're very opposite, but we need to include those voices. Sometimes somebody is annoying. They're a pest. Mm -hmm. We don't like them and we, we don't want them around because they're a bug. The story tells us that they are also important and that we have to listen to them. And what fly also represents is that small and seemingly insignificant thought that somebody might have. If there's a group of people talking and planning and deciding, they're all on the same track, but then all of a sudden you have an idea, but you don't wanna say anything because it's not important. It's not that big. It doesn't sound like what everybody else is talking about. So you hold it inside. And this, this story gives everybody permission to share their voice, no matter how small it might seem, because it might be that tiny little piece that's needed to bring life back. Mm -hmm. And so that song is our, or that story is our governance story. That story tells us how to listen and who to involve and how we make important decisions together. And so I think about that story every time I struggle, every time I need to make a decision, every time I'm uncomfortable, um, if I don't agree with something, I still have to be open to their voice because it's important. Even if I don't understand it, even if I don't like it, I still have to keep my mind open to their song. Mm, that's beautiful. So much wisdom there. Thanks again for joining us today, coming on our podcast again. We really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. Um, before we go here, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me through my website, www.elainealec.com. And I'm really active on my Instagram. I try to share teachings and thoughts on my Instagram every day. And so I'm uh, at Elaine underscore Alec underscore writer underscore speaker. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much, Elaine. Thanks, Brian. Much love, everyone. And thank you for listening today. Remember to visit us online at www.elysiumproject.tv where you can find links to all our social media, online marketplace, blog, and more. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.